Spring is in full swing and summer is just around the corner. A great time for a beach getaway at the Oceanfront Boardwalk Plaza Hotel in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware. Enjoy the best of oceanfront accommodations and amazing dining right on the beach, both with great views of the ocean and boardwalk. Enjoy a soak in the heated indoor spa pool or book the adults-only concierge level and relax in the rooftop hot tubs. Book online at boardwalkplaza.com or call 800-33 beach thanks to the boardwalk plaza for being the bridge podcast network sponsor story jumpers welcome to another episode of your favorite storytelling podcast are you ready to hear a great story of course that's why you're a story jumper after a frustrating and boring start to his day 12-year-old Brock Billings has no idea of the dangerous adventures that await him in Papua New Guinea A brush with a hungry crocodile, a kerosene fire, and getting lost alone in the jungle at night are the least of Brock's worries when he's captured by rival hunters. With the help of his friends, Brock and his missionary family work hard not only to bring peace to the opposing groups, but to spread the love of Jesus and translate God's word. Will they succeed, or are pride and fear too strong? to overcome. Enjoy this reading of Jungle Hunt by Lucy Brockway Tumas. Jungle Hunt by Lucy Brockway Tumas. Twelve-year-old Brock Billings clenched his fist. Why? Of all weekends, why this one? Until today, Brock had always looked forward to the excitement of flying in the six-passenger Cessna plane. But knowing he would miss his class retreat had changed his mind about returning to the remote Bandu village with his missionary parents and siblings. Mom, I've looked forward to the sixth-grade camping trip for years. I may never get another chance to sleep in a bat cave with my friends. Brock, you've, you've always enjoyed living in Bandu village. You will this time, too. Remember our Bible study last night? Our feelings follow what we focus on. So can you try... Yeah, yeah, I know, Mom, but... Just then, the plane jerked again, as if struck from below. Now what? Brock thought. Hang on, Pilot Rick called out. We're almost there. Everyone began searching for the familiar airstrip below them. I see it. Brock shouted. Brock held his breath when the plane dropped toward the jungle below. From the air, the runway appeared to be just a narrow dirt trail. The sturdy plane shuddered when it bumped down on the ground. At first, the plane seemed to streak toward the tall grass, but Pilot Rich expertly swung the plane around to taxi toward the small hangar. Okay, kids, Dad said. Help me and the pilot unload our boxes. You know, I can't believe how much you can pack into these little planes, Brock said to Pilot Rich. Well, it's a good thing I had enough space for your school books, the pilot said with a wink. Brock finger-combed his sun-bleached hair off his already sweating forehead, dreading the long hours in the canoe under the tropical sun. He hefted a box containing flour and sugar and carried it down toward the river. How am I going to survive without the internet? 
Brock muttered. No video games, no connection with friends in the U.S. He took out his frustrations by kicking clumps of dirt as he shuffled down the slope to the canoes. Then he spied Yoki, his best friend from Bondu Village, climbing out of a canoe with a spear in his hand and wearing his usual brown t-shirt and shorts. He waved to Brock with his hat, exposing his short, tightly curled black hair. Yoki, I didn't know you were coming, Brock called out in his friend's Bondu language. I'm so glad to see you. Brock hurried down the hill and dropped the box to greet Yoki with their unique greeting, a fake fist bump into a shoulder body check. Brock was flung to the ground and once again experienced the strength of his smaller friend. Yoki's dark eyes shone, and his brown face cracked into a smile. Brock, Brock, my brother, I am so glad you are finally here. He offered his hand and effortlessly pulled Brock to his feet and grabbed the box Brock had dropped. Yoki was a few years older and a tad shorter, but Brock knew Yoki was stronger. So, Yoki, how many fish did you spear on your way here? None. The mota noise frightened the fish away. But maybe we can catch some before we leave. Uh, I can't right now. I've got to help load the canoes. I will help my brother Brock. Yoki's father, Motorven, and his uncle Serena each owned an outboard motor for their 25-foot dugout canoes, each hewn from a massive log. The canoe's bows proudly displayed a carved crocodile head, the symbol of their clan. I'm glad my dad arranged for your father and uncle to pick us up, Brock said. During the next half hour, the boys lugged boxes down from the airstrip to the river for the men to secure into the canoes. Since the village store only sold rice and canned fish, the Billings family always brought other food items to supplement the fruits and vegetables grown in the village. I'm glad your dad and uncle know how to balance all our stuff in those narrow canoes, Brock said. Yes, I am learning how to load canoes since I am old enough to help Papa and Uncle Motorben. The men securely strapped the large kerosene drum into the second canoe, with no access to electricity in the village, the Billings used the solar-powered lights and kerosene lanterns and also used kerosene for their specially made refrigerator. Brock didn't fully understand how a kerosene flame could chill food, but he was glad and thankful he had cold milk for breakfast. Okay, boys, thanks for your help, Dad said. While we make the final checks on the load, why not take a dip to cool off? Brock waded into the river, spread his arms over his head, and fell backward. Matt, Brock's five-year-old brother, took advantage of the moment to pounce on him. Yoki then joined the brothers, enjoying the cool relief from the midday sun. After they had slathered themselves with sunblock, they put on their life vests. Dad then helped Matt and eight-year-old Christy settle into the first canoe. Brock snickered as he watched his lanky dad fold himself into the narrow bow of the canoe. Good thing dad was slim. Armed with an oar, dad deflected the floating branches and vegetation in the murky brown water, swollen by the seasonal rains. Laughing and splashing each other, Christy and Matt rocked their canoe. Brock couldn't imagine them sitting still in the narrow canoe for hours. Kids, settle down, dad warned. We don't want anything to tip out. I'm happy we can ride together in the second canoe, Yoki said. 
I need to tell you all that has happened while you are away, but I hope your brother and sister don't fall into the river. <laughs> Dangerous. The canoe's carved crocodile had stretched up the river while Brock lazed back with his hands behind his head. Brightly colored tropical birds squawked overhead. Hey, Brock, look, Matt hollered. Brock looked up just in time to see a milk-white cockatoo flapping its wings, then majestically gliding to the other side of the river. Brock, I want one for a pet, Matt bellowed, frightening a flock of birds. Brock, can you hear me? Quiet, Matt, Christy scolded. You're scaring everything. Okay, I hear you, Matt, Brock yelled out over the motor's loud whine. Just wait till we get to Bondu. Matt talked in English. Yogi said. What did he tell you? Brock translated into Bandu. He wanted me to see the cockatoo that just flew over us. He wants one for a pet to keep in a cage like his friend has. Oh, we can go hunting tomorrow and capture one for him, Yogi said. Papa taught me how to make the bird traps, but we do not keep birds in a cage. We eat them. Whoa, don't tell Matt that, Brock said. He'd think it was gross. The two-hour ride upstream always seemed unbearably long, but today, with Yoki filling him in on all the village news and more legroom, time flew. The familiar contrasting greens of the overlapping trees and chatting with his good friend melted Brock's frustrations of the morning. Maybe he could enjoy this time in the village. I want to show you the improvements in our school building, Yoki said. Really? What are they? Matt's shouts then interrupted their conversation. Brack, look, there's another one. But this time, Matt stood, pointing toward another cockatoo in a tree on the riverbank. And since his canoe was now three lengths ahead, he hollered louder. Brack, Brack, look! The lead canoe rocked when Matt turned around, waving his arms to get Brock's attention. Matthew, sit down, Mom shouted. But her warning came too late. Matt lost his balance and plunged into the river. Panicked, Brock almost stood himself. When Matt's head broke the surface, he was between the two canoes. The momentum of the first canoe had left him behind. Matt sputtered, coughed, and flapped his arms. Brock was relieved the life jacket kept his brother's head visible, but he feared the danger of the churning wake water. Puck, puck! Yoki shouted, pointing toward a huge reptile now sliding down the muddy bank into the river. Crocodile! Brock shrieked. Matt! Matt! Mom and Christy screamed repeatedly. With the crocodile racing now towards its prey, Brock could only see its eyes, just above the dirty waters, but they were locked on his little brother. Oh God, please save Matt! Brock called out. Help us get to him before the croc does! Story Jumpers! Have you ever faced a crocodile? I don't know how Matt is going to get out of this situation or if his brother Brock will even be able to get to him in time. But I've got someone with us who might know the answer if she's willing to share it. The author of the book, Lucy Brockway Tumas. Lucy, thanks for joining Story Jumpers. Well, thank you so much for inviting me and um, letting me share some of the excitement of Jungle Hunt. Well, excitement is an understatement. It sounds like Brock and his family are in for a lot of adventures. 
Indeed. The, the exciting thing, his day started out very boring, and he was leaving his friends, and he was going to be going out to the village, and he was kind of grumpy about that, and he was sure he wouldn't have as much fun out in the village as he usually did, because he just obviously had a bad attitude. I'm sure kids and adults don't really ever have that, but Brock <laughs> did. So... Uh, his day turned around quite a bit with the fun of flying over the mountains of Papua New Guinea and with the wonderful, exciting downdrafts and updrafts. And then they got in the canoe to go up to the village and lo and behold, his little brother did not obey. He didn't stay sitting in the canoe. So you can imagine what happened. Oh, my gosh. I would be terrified. Oh, yeah. And then his friend, speaking in the Bandu language, he starts screaming, crocodile, crocodile. And that's where the adventure really begins. Yeah, I'd say so. I'd say so. Now, you mentioned Papua New Guinea. Did I get that right? Papua New Guinea. Okay. Where in the world, in the world, is Papua New Guinea? Well, if you look at the world map, and most people know, recognize Australia, mm-hmm. well, there's a big island that sort of looks like a perching bird. Papua New Guinea is the right-hand side of that big island, and it's called Papua New Guinea. Wow. And it sounds like a beautiful place from what you've described in the book. Can you tell us, just give us the snapshot from the experiences that you've had there, what it looks like, what it feels like? Well, um, on the coast, you've got beautiful sand beaches or rock beaches, and it's very tropical, and it's very hot, and it rains a lot. And then as you further go in, there's winding jungle rivers. And if you go take a big... Uh, flight over and across the country, then you see these incredibly sharp mountains. The, it's picturesque from one end to the other, and it's a it's a delight to drive to fly across. And there's very there are actually more little airports than there are highways because it's so rugged. No, kidding. It's an amazing, amazing, and there are birds and reptiles that are found nowhere else than in Papua New Guinea. Wow. Wow. That's fascinating. So what, what brought about this story? What motivated you to write a novel about a missionary kid living there in Papua New Guinea? Actually, uh, the point of that is for our, for our kids. When we were leaving the U.S. and going to Papua New Guinea, we had people say, how could you possibly take your kids away from the U.S. culture and education and TV and all the other wonderful things? And fast forward, when our kids were in college and they said to us, thank you so much for taking us to the other side of the world, Papua New Guinea, because we saw what it was like to interact with other cultures, 
But the thing that really impacted them, they saw and heard the stories of people who did not hear God's word before. And then because it was finally translated into their language, they saw lives changed. And that experience so internalized inside them that that has had a profound impact on both of their ministries that they're involved in today. So, you know, you kind of wonder, okay, God, we think this is where you want us to take our kids and where you want us to serve. But yes, obviously a major positive influence to our kids. So we thank God for that. Yeah. And so you took, you and your husband took your kids to this small island nation (laughs) on the other side of the world to share God's word and teach people about Jesus. And now, like you said, fast forward, um, they're, they're all grown up and they're active in their own ministries and they have their own children. They do. So uh, I understand there's, um, you know, some tie-in to your family names to the characters in the book. What are those? Well, Brock it was a nickname for my dad, and he was an incredibly godly man. So I wanted to honor him. Um, my son's name is Matt, and our daughter is Christy. So the names of the, the brothers and sisters of uh, Brock in this story are name of my kids. That's pretty cool. Now, did, is, but, did you have some of these experiences that Brock had? Well, we did. Um, we had the fun and sometimes the excitement, uh, white knuckle flying uh, over some of the the uh, updrafts and downdrafts of flying in small in small planes. And um, we've been spent uh, time out in the village. We thought we were going to be uh, either translators or literacy workers. And um, my health was never strong enough. After I got there, I got chronic fatigue syndrome. Anyway, uh, so whenever we could, we would go out for four to six weeks and help the translators or literacy people. And so we lived out there and sat uh, cross-legged under the houses and um, had lots of fun and meals and and really see what life was out there. So, yeah, we did have a lot of those good experiences. Wow. And then while I was there, I was... um, a writer in the communications department. And um, I heard stories all the time that I wrote up. So um, uh, Jungle Hunt is not a true life story of somebody, but it is kind of a, a mosaic of all the experiences and uh, fun and dangers that actually happens. And then the exciting thing when you see someone and understand as they realize who Jesus is yeah, and how he can impact their life. Absolutely. So all of those things come together, all put together in a novel. That's neat. I like how you say that a mosaic of experiences that come together under one character's story. That's really neat idea. And then what would you say makes Jungle Hunt unique from other action-packed books that are written for young readers? I I remember growing up on Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn and, you know, some of those guys. 
But yeah. they were just down south in the United States. They didn't make it all the way around the world. <laughs> well, the exciting thing about Jungle Hunt, it is not something, some fantastic, uh, imaginary place. Upward is a real place. And the things that I talk about are real things. It just, you know, a lot of people around the world don't know that those kind of things and beautiful adventures and dangers and the, the thrill of getting to know other cultures. And Brock gets to get involved with a couple of uh, language groups that living near where he does. So that brought some adventures and challenges to him. So it's a real, it's, it's, it's like I said, it's a lot of facts put together, but it is, it is real. It's a real place. When we first got there, we saw a big uh, travel poster and it says Papua New Guinea, the place like every place you've never been. Wow. So it's just, you know, it's, they realize how, in a sense, very, almost unbelievable. Yeah. That's a very special creation by God, for sure. Oh, yeah, for sure. What do you mean by language groups? I've never heard that before. Well, I, I'm i believing that it's um, something from Papua New Guinea instead of being called um, tribes, and they're called language groups. So, And then, of course, they are grouped in families, uh, language families, mm-hmm. but um, that's anyway. Doesn't everybody in Papua New Guinea speak the same language? There are 800 languages in that country. Whoa. Are you kidding me? I am not kidding you. How do they keep anything straight? Well, there are three trade languages. And the one that we learned was is called uh, Pidgin English or Tokpisin. And then there's another one, Perimutu, and I know I've forgotten the other one right off while you're while you're asking. But there's we didn't know that one, but yeah, we became very fluent in um, in uh, pidgin English, and our kids talked it and you know had friends with that language as well. English is the language of education. It is a Commonwealth nation, and so like. Australia and Canada and all that they all their their language and government and education. But you imagine kids leaving the jungle and going to a school and they're speaking English. And they have no idea what's going on. So it's obviously a huge challenge. So that's part of what um, the group that, that we're part of, they work with literacy. And getting an alphabet. A lot of none of these eight hundred languages came with an alphabet, so they have to be linguistically analyzed and then create an alphabet so that they can teach them to read and write their own language. They obviously know it, but they don't have an alphabet, and each one of them are totally different. So it's a very challenging process. Many, many, many years through the whole thing. And then, of course, obviously, they don't have the Bible in their language. So that's the major focus of the organization that we work with. 
it's really fascinating to even think that, you know, we, we go to school as story jumpers and we learn English. We learn to read and write using the alphabet that we're taught. And then to wonder at the whole world and think about all the tribes and nations that exist with their own languages, with their own, you know, some written, as you say, and some with no written language. How did you ever get involved with a group or a ministry that works on languages and and being able to tell people about God in their own language? Well, John and I both uh, met at uh, Moody Bible Institute and uh, mission conferences are great to uh, expand what God might want to have for your life. And uh, eventually, without going throughout the whole story, um, we really felt as though, you know, the, the verse that says, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And then we learned how can you preach the gospel if nobody can understand your language? And how are they ever going to read God's word if they don't have an alphabet and nobody knows their language? So that God just really tugged on our hearts that this would probably be something for us to do. And obviously, uh, 45 years later, we're still with Wycliffe Bible Translator. I have uh, retired, but my husband is still uh, part of Wycliffe and doing uh, finance at this point in his life. So that's what got us there. We took the linguistic courses, and uh, when we got to Papua New Guinea, about a year into our there, I got that wonderful thing called chronic fatigue syndrome. And unfortunately, I never was really well enough to go out into the rigors for full time. So I was glad that eventually I did get some help and we were able to visit out in villages and stay there for four to six weeks to really get a feeling of the country and make friends. But we learned the. There's something special about sitting across the table from a friend, whether we've known them forever or for just a minute with a good cup of coffee and an open heart. Some of my favorite conversations have happened over the rims of mugs. I'm Denise Harper, co-host of The Morning Show with Bill and Denise. Check out my new podcast, Over the Rims of Mugs. Be sure to subscribe so you can join the conversation, Over the Rims of Mugs. The trade language, so even though we didn't know people's language, we could speak to them. So that, that gave got us into that. That's really, really neat, Lucy. I don't know very many people with your experience. If there were story jumpers who are hearing you talk about going to other countries and meeting other cultures and translating languages and telling other young people about Jesus, how would they even get started on this adventure uh, like you did? Well, I know that Wycliffe Bible Translators has um, places on their website that have interesting stories and information that kids could enjoy. So, you know, so uh, you can get um, involved with that and learn more about it. I mean, in fact, that was one of the reasons why I wanted to write this book. I wanted kids to know that it isn't a horrible, scary thing full of a lot of adventures uh, that, of course, a lot of kids are kind of wanting to find that just watching TV. Why not go and do it for real? But I really wanted them to realize um, not just what our kids experience, for other people to vicariously see the ex- the thrill, you know, 
the protagonist gets to share his faith. And then he actually eventually meets a, a guy that he was going to school in English out on the coast, but to explain, walk in there, and he has no idea what anybody's saying and how he's eventually learning how to learn English and read and write. And then he shares with uh, my protagonist, boy, I would like to help make an, an alphabet. And there are an awful lot of Papua New Guineans who have taken on that mission themselves. And they take uh, training and become linguists and translators themselves. It's pretty exciting. That is pretty exciting. So what reactions have you received from readers uh, when they get a hold of this book? Well, probably one of the most exciting things was recently I went to my my chiropractor and uh, he said, well, you know, I bought that book of yours. I said, great. And he said, yeah, my two oldest boys, they grabbed it and read it one right after the other. And he said a couple of days later, he came home from work and two guys were outside playing. And he said, where's your brother? And they said, oh, he's inside. So he went into the house. He was going to tell him, it's a beautiful day. Get outside. So he went into the bedroom. He's curled up on the bed reading Jungle Hunt. And he said, I let him go. So now what more could an L, uh, uh, or they're here that this somebody just book went right through three boys. So I'm pretty excited about that. Yeah. My, my grandkids, all five of them are voracious readers. And the two that live near me here in Colorado have read it many times. And along the way, they would say, uh, but Grammy, what does that mean? Well, I don't understand why that's happening. And some of it obviously was cultural. And uh, so uh, Kylan and Kale have been uh, voracious beta readers and have given me an awful lot of good, ex you know, suggestions of how to make the story clearer. So this is a huge shout out to them. Awesome. And we've had even people that are, you know, in their 70s, one late in her 80s, and she said she stayed up all night to read it because she couldn't put it down. So um, I I have been very encouraged. That's great. That's really Probably cool. Probably the in endorsement that I, it is in the beginning of, of the book that is a translator who is still translating right now because he's now working with a group of nine languages and they all started realizing what was going on. He said that this uh, really looked like a authentic cultural details. And he said it reminded him of the village where he and his family, uh, their kids grew up. So that's really exciting to me to realize that I guess I got it pretty close. And it is a novel. Yeah. Yeah, that is cool. Now, do you have plans for any future stories? Well... Um, our kids keep telling us that I need to do that. And uh, I'm, I've got some ideas. I'm thinking maybe when uh, Brock uh, stays at the main center and stays in a children's home. And so you can imagine those kind of kids can get into some fun adventures too. <laughs> well, if the story comes together, would you please return to Story Jumpers and share it with us? I will be glad to. Excellent. Lucy, thank you so much for sharing this story with us all about Brock and his adventures. Parents, 
Lucy Brockway Tumas has authored three books, Mission Possible, The Power of the Word, and Jungle Hunt. For most of her years with Wycliffe Bible Translators and SIL International, Lucy served as a writer in communications, documenting real-life stories of the impact of Bible translation and literacy. Jungle Hunt is her first fictional novel. Their family called the South Pacific nation of Papua New Guinea their home for 15 years. Lucy and her husband John now live and work remotely in Longmont, Colorado. Interesting fact and spoiler alert ahead. During her jungle camp training in Mexico, Lucy was separated from the other campers to spend the night alone in the jungle in the middle of the night. She heard something creeping closer and closer and saw the tall grasses moving. When she wrote Jungle Hunt, that suspenseful incident was experienced by her main character, Brock. Learn more about her books when you visit her website at lucytumas.com.